Well, last week, when we discussed chapter 19, we saw how the people of Israel finally made it to Mount Sinai. In the, on the first day of the third month after the Exodus, they finally arrived at the base of the mountain of God, and Moses ascends the mountain and worships the Lord there in fulfillment of what God had said back in chapter 3, verse 12, namely that the sign that you would receive that all this is from me is that when everything is said and done, you would be back here worshiping me on this very mountain. We don't like signs that only seem to be true in retrospect, but that's the sign Moses receives. And God, in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, introduces and summarizes his covenant with the people. He proposes a covenant saying that I have delivered you. You've seen everything that I have done. What I did to the Egyptians, what I did to get you here, how I bore you like on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So God prefaces his covenant with his gracious activity on their behalf. And then he says now, if you will obey my voice, you will be a treasured possession. And we saw last week that that's not saying that they would become his people or that they would get saved because God prefaces even that comment with the words, for everything in the world is mine. And we saw that that is the language of, of, of special priority within someone's house. And I talked about my wife's china being everything in the house we own, but this is special. And how each of you, you have your stuff, all the stuff you own, but there are particular things that are extra special. You may not even use those special things all the time because they're so special, but they have lots of meaning and significance for you. And so the idea here is that by keeping the commands, it's not that the people would become God's people, it's that they would experience the blessedness of being special. But then we saw that God said, if you obey my voice, not only would you be my treasured possession, but you would be a kingdom of priests. And we saw that kingdom, that priests are basically characterized by two things. First, they have closer access to the gods or, or to God. In any culture, the priests have access and so it's speaking of the people's access to God. And yes, even in the Old Covenant where the people didn't have the same degree of access we do, nonetheless, they could enter into the tabernacle and offer sacrifices there within mere feet of the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord's presence on earth. They had access that the nations did not have. But also, priests are characterized not only by access, but by a mission and a task. Priests aren't appointed priests for themselves. They're appointed priests for other people who need mediation and ministry. And the idea is that God has put on earth a people who are priests to who? To the world. Because Exodus is all about God making his name famous among the nations. So here's a people whom God has now appointed to be his messengers to the world. But then lastly, they would be a holy nation. That they would be characterized by conformity to God's own character. Instead of being common 
and indistinguishable from the masses, they would be distinct. They would be visibly distinct. And so those three things are the summary of the covenant and what God is offering in the covenant. And of course, the people say, yes, whatever you say, we'll do. And then Moses comes down the mountain and chapter 20, verse 1, begins with God speaking. God speaks these words in a way that he's spoken no words to the people of God before and that he speaks the Ten Commandments directly to the people from the mountain. That is an awesome thing. Now, within God's law, the Ten Commandments hold a special place. Jewish history, Christian history, both understand that within the the context of God's law, which we are about to enter, the Ten Commandments have a special role, a special significance, and a special application. They're unique. Of course, not everybody thinks that the Ten Commandments are unique. You can find all sorts of websites and all sorts of articles and books where where they'll say things like the Ten Commandments are, are, are no different than any of the other laws. That the law, you shall not murder, is no different than, than the law about if you're walking along and you find your neighbor's donkey in a ditch, you got to help it out. Okay, they'll say there's no distinction at all between those two commandments. They're all just commands. And subsequently, when the old covenant is, is fulfilled which we'll talk about later, then the the Ten Commandments are just as relegated to obsolescence as is the command to build a parapet on your house. There's a lot of people who say that. But are the Ten Commandments really something that are just ordinary commands? Or are they something special? Our Westminster Confession and catechisms, I think rightly understands that the Ten Commandments are indeed special, that they are in fact a restatement of the very moral law that God has written on the heart of every man, woman, and child. They are a restatement of those truths that God has so ingrained into our nature that everyone, everywhere, has basic access to the knowledge of it. You might say, not everyone understands that there's a one God that you should have none other before. Really? What does Romans 1 tell us? That the knowledge of God is available to everyone, but it's suppressed in unrighteousness. The Ten Commandments, we will see, are indeed special. But they're so special that in our culture they're kind of a lightning rod. There are people we've, you know, they, who, who want them posted in, in courthouses and in public places, and there are people who want them torn down from those same places. Uh, what's the deal? Should, should we expect the Ten Commandments to be everywhere posted? Uh, should we ex- what's our relationship as a nation to the Ten Commandments? What's our relationship as Christians to the Ten Commandments? What's the relationship of the Ten Commandments to the rest of the law? 
Should we have the law about parapets posted in our courthouses? Incidentally, I think we do. I think we do have them posted. It's just it's rightly contextualized. Because the law about parapets is about making sure your property is safe. And do we not have lots of laws in place about safety? Anyway. What's the deal with the Ten Commandments? Now, what I want to do as we dive into this section, because the next several chapters deal with law, I want to help you by offering some tips and suggestions for understanding and applying the law. What we need to do is avoid two common errors in the modern evangelical world. One is to functionally relive Marcion's heresy. Marcion was an early church leader in the late 100s who, who, who started out as a legit pastor. But then his views warped and he, and he came to believe that the God of the Old Testament was fundamentally different than the God of the New Testament. And so he jettisoned the entire Old Testament. The Gospels. And he kept basically just Paul's letters. So there are people out there, there are Christians or purported Christians out there, it's easy to find on the internet, that say the Old Testament is not for us. It's easy to find that. There's also Christians who think that the Bible, the whole Bible, is for us, but the Old Testament, especially the law, is basically just for informational purposes only. That it's full of interesting factoids that may be interesting, but really, eh, they don't need to be reflected upon and studied and determined how to apply them because they're just irrelevant. Part of the transition from the old to the new covenant. Such as, I'm reading a biography of Ulysses S. Grant. And did you know that his wife came from a slaveholding family in Missouri? And he died in 1885 from throat cancer. She died in 1902, and she went to her grave, missing the good old days. Hmm. I bet you didn't know that, did you? So what? Interesting factoid. Many people think the law is that way. Now, we all know that Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But oftentimes we mistakenly think that what Jesus is saying leads to a functional equivalence. That, okay, he may have not abolished it, but in fulfilling it, he basically made it irrelevant. Remember the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for what? Training in righteousness. To what end? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing, ready for every good work. So this all Scripture Paul is talking about certainly included stuff in the New Testament. But all Scripture includes the Old Testament, including the law. So why did God give the law? We saw last week, I, I 
tried to drive the point home that God begins his summary of his covenant in chapter 19, verse 4, by pointing out that he'd already acted on their behalf to save them. So these commandments are not given to show someone how they can go to heaven. If you do all these laws, I'll let you into heaven. That's what people think, but that's wrong. The laws were delivered to a saved people to show them how they can please their Father in heaven. How they can be that holy nation, distinct from the masses. That kind of puts a different spin on the law, doesn't it? And you see, even in the second commandment that we read today, the emphasis on how obedience must flow from love. God was never about mere rote obedience. He's always been about heart, belief, faith, trust, the priority of affections known as love. And these particular commandments are secondary to that. So the law... Why was it given? Well, there are three basic purposes for why the law was given. The first we've talked about as being a mirror. It reflects to us our own inability to be perfect. It is a continual driving back to God for mercy, looking forward to a Savior who can save us because we cannot perfectly obey. The law was never given for you to think it's possible to be perfect. It was given to show you precisely the opposite. You cannot be perfect. And just when you think that, oh, I've not murdered somebody, Jesus comes along and shows you, contrary to public opinion, Jesus isn't adding, adding, adding emphasis to the command. He's not adding requirements to the command when he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, whoever says to his brother, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. He's not adding. He's explaining. You people have missed the boat from day one and not realized the gravity and the depth of obedience And the heart issues here regarding this law, this very law that incidentally Christ delivered himself from Mount Sinai as the angel of the Lord. The law is meant to drive us to Jesus. But second, it is also important to remember that what is happening here is the formation of a geopolitical nation. Okay? Nations need laws. They do. We, we, we love to moan and groan about laws when they inconvenience us or restrict us, but laws are necessary to keep people from taking advantage of each other, to make sure everybody has access and opportunity. And so a lot of the laws here are specific to the fact that they are a nation. And as a nation, they need civil laws. Third, and I think most fundamentally, relating back to God's covenant summary in chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, it's a guide for how to please their Father. You want to please me? This is how you can look different from the nations. 
One of the interesting realities of the law that we so often forget is that the law is not simply a checklist of do's and don'ts. God wasn't sitting up in heaven thinking, man, these rascals, I've got to rein them in. What are some things I can do to clip their wings a little bit? Oh, they're having too much fun down there on earth, you know, so I've got to take away some liberties. The law was given by way of imitation. We are in keeping the law to reflect back God's own holiness, which is why God so often in the Torah will say, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that same injunction is repeated in the New Testament, that we are called to be holy because our Father is holy, and we are called to imitate Him in holiness. So in and through this law, we see a picture of God's own character and God's own concerns regarding our social interactions. So the law is not meant just to take away your fun. It's meant to enable you to showcase God's character, which is why in Psalm 119, David is able to go on and on and on about how wonderful the law is, how it sheds light on his way, how it illuminates his every step, how his precepts bring light and life to us. Because we are imitating and modeling the character of God himself. Now within these laws, there are three basic categories of law. There are moral laws, which are contained in basic precepts, you shall not murder. Notice how there's no conditions applied to that. It's just a statement. You shall not commit adultery. God doesn't care about your extenuating circumstances. These are absolute laws that govern human character and behavior wherever and whenever and whatever circumstance you're in. You shall not. Sometimes scholarly people, if you go off to college and you, and you get some professor, you, those of you about to graduate high school, they'll refer to it as apodictic law. You ever heard that term before? Apodictic law. It's the fancy pants term for, for moral principle that is true across the board in an absolute sense. That's what these Ten Commandments are. But then you have civil laws. Because again, we're talking about the formation of a people group. So there's a lot of laws that are basically how to govern social interactions. So if you know, if you're, if you're swinging at an axe and the axe head flies off accidentally and it strikes someone, then what? And these laws follow an if-then type of format. If this happens, then this. And the fancy pants term is casuistic laws or case laws. These are civil laws that govern society, but then there's also ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws refer to those laws that are specifically related to the worship life of Israel. If you bring an offering for a burnt offering, it must be a year old without any blemish. That kind of thing. Okay. Now you'll get some people who try to muddy all this 
And yes, they're muddying it with the intent of trying to take away the moral law. That's what they're doing. They say, well, as a nation, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of bleed over and crossover between that which is moral and ceremonial and civil. So if, if the ceremonial laws aren't valid, then who's to say that these moral laws aren't valid, are invalid? It's true that there's a lot of bleed over. But they still, we are still able to identify and maintain these basic categories of that which is ceremonial, that which is civil, and that which is strictly moral. The civil and the ceremonial laws of God that we're about to read are nonetheless expositions and applications of the moral law. Which is why you can still read Leviticus and find truth for life in it. Because the moral law of God has been applied to their very specific situation. And the task for us is to say, okay, what situation do we have that is analogous to it? And how do we derive the moral principle behind it to find the course of action that God would have for us in our own day? Because the ceremonial laws or the civil laws have to change due to the fact that we have a different culture. For example, if you read the penal code of Israel, no mention is made at all of prisons. They had no prisons. There were prisons back in the day. I mean, Joseph himself was thrown in one. But the penal code of Israel had no prisons. But by the time the first entry rolls around and Jesus is on the scene, the Romans had instituted debtor's prison at the very least, and Jesus references it in some of his parables. And there's no condemnation made. So there's a clear understanding that the penal code changes based upon the cultural context. But yet there's still the need for us to find the underlying principles behind these civil laws. Remember that the law was given to enable the people to reflect God's holiness. It was never made for them to think they were earning their way to heaven. They were not building a stairway to heaven by being good. Okay? Now, I, I need to say that because there's a lot of people who think that law is bad, grace is good, and, they, and, and there's books, grace-powered grace parenting and gospel-fueled parenting and all this, and, and, and it can easily give you the impression, impression that having rules and expecting your children to behave is legalistic inherently. It's not. It wasn't legalistic for God to say, you are my people, therefore you will be holy. It's not legalistic of God to say that in the New Testament either. So don't let people think, make you think that grace means doing away with rules or standards of behavior. What grace does is it underscores the basis of our acceptance and acceptability. You are a legalist if you're saying you're accepted on the basis of these works. You're fueling gospel if you say, I expect you to behave because this is who you are. You're accepted by me, therefore, I expect this. So, 
the Ten Commandments. They're unique. But of course, the world tries to tell you they're not. I was reading uh, in preparation for this sermon, and the number of people who try to make it seem like these are just, you know, backwards and dated on the one hand, or insignificant. Oh, there's all these other legal codes that came along before, you know. So, so like right here, several law codes predate even the early mythical date for the Ten Commandments. This leaves Yahweh's chosen people not only incapable of making a decent set of laws for themselves, but paints them as latecomers in the law and order department. See that scoffing attitude? They point out that the code of Hammurabi predated Moses by about 300 years. And I'm sitting there going, so what? So what? So what that the Assyrians had laws? So what that the Egypt? Of course the people had laws. Every nation has to have laws. Remember, the Ten Commandments weren't descended from heaven in a world where there was no such thing as law. It's a restatement of those moral truths that everyone knew to be true. Which is why, for example, when Abraham goes to Egypt and he lies, Pharaoh is outraged that he would have lied and brought guilt because if I had slept with your wife, I would have brought guilt on me and my kingdom. He knew it was wrong to sleep with another man's wife. Where did that come from? From the moral law written on the heart. They knew it was wrong to steal, etc., etc. Justice was not invented in Exodus chapter 20. When Cain kills Abel, what does God say? The blood of your brother cries out from the ground. Okay? Justice is built into this created order. And a moral sense is ingrained in our human makeup. That's why everybody, everywhere, understands right and wrong. What we define as right and wrong may be culturally dependent, but the concept that there are rules and there's right behavior and wrong behavior, everyone understands. But where does that come from if we're just random cells put together by chance? So don't let anyone scare you or, 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 or make you think that the Ten Commandments are irrelevant just because civilizations older than Israel wrote down laws for the ordering of their societies. Of course they did. They had to in order for their society to remain. But it is unique. If you look at the Code of Hammurabi, for example, one of the things that it says is, oh, Moses borrowed some of the concepts from the Code of Hammurabi. Really? Did he really? Or are these just common moral law issues that are on people's hearts? But for example, the Code of Hammurabi has a form of the lex talionis, which I'm sure you've heard. The law of retaliation, an eye for an eye. Ooh, that sounds so barbaric. Does it sound barbaric? Just last night, I was being regaled by stories and, uh, of my kids' actions and, you know, when one kid is doing something and egging another kid on and the other kid, you know, pops him, it's kind of what you get. You had it coming. Have you ever said, well, you had it coming? 
When something happens, you tell your kids not to do this, and they do it anyway, and there's bad, well, that's what you had coming. Okay, that's the lex talionis in action. We understand it. It just sounds hard to say an eye for an eye. But Hammurabi had the eye for an eye principle, and it was graded depending on one's social standing. So it was an eye for an eye among peers. But if you injured a social inferior, well, and if you injured a social superior, it was more than an eye for an eye. So Moses here actually makes justice equitable by saying an eye for an eye. The, the eye for an eye thing is about everybody gets the same justice. It's not about the harshness of a punishment. It's that there's no favoritism. So the Ten Commandments are not nullified just because other cultures had laws. No, the Ten Commandments are special, and they're unique among Jewish tradition and Christian tradition. And there are three reasons I want to underscore why they are unique and they are special. The first reason we know that the Ten Commandments are special is because of the way they are given. Okay? God himself thunders them from the mountain. The rest of the law comes by mediation from Moses. But the Ten Commandments, whether it's here in Exodus 20 or Moses making it very clear in his reiteration of this in Deuteronomy 5, the people heard the voice of God delivering these commandments and it terrified them. Hebrews adds in that it terrified Moses himself. Okay, no other laws that God has given is presented in such a way with such awe-inspiring pyrotechnics going on around it. So the manner of their delivery indicates that what is being said here is unique, it's special, it's consequential. And that makes sense if God is reiterating and restating his moral law that he's created into the universe that he built. But the second way we know they're special is the way they are recorded. Here in Deuteronomy or Exodus 20, it's presented at the absolute head of God's law. It's like the Bill of Rights to our Constitution. Many people mistakenly believe the Bill of Rights is the sum total of our Constitution. It's not. But it's at the very beginning, and it serves almost as a preface. We all know historically it was an afterthought, <laughs> but it serves as a preface, and that's the most important part. So here in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments is like the preface to the rest of God's law. And the rest of God's law is going to serve as an exposition of those Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 5, when Moses repeats the Ten Commandments, they're presented as God's basic covenantal demands. And then reference is made throughout Scripture back to the Ten Commandments as a special unit, as a distinct group, the Ten Words. So they are recorded in a unique way. Third, they are confirmed in the New Testament. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he offers his famous summary in like Luke chapter 10, where he offers his famous summary, he does so along the long-standing division of the Ten Commandments into those two tables or those two categories of the laws directly applicable to God and the laws regarding human relationships. When he says the first and greatest commandment is, you shall love God the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
So he summarizes the first four commandments with loving God. Then he quickly chimes in. They didn't ask him for a second commandment. He chimes in because he understands they're related and connected. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And those summarizes the last six commandments. So that division between loving God and loving neighbor, that's long-standing in Jewish and Christian tradition. So Jesus affirms it implicitly right there. But then each of the Ten Commandments is either assumed or explicitly reaffirmed in the New Testament. So, rather than abolish the law, Jesus fulfills its demands And so now the external nature of them has been internalized by the Holy Spirit. But these ten commandments abide as a showcase of the basic behaviors that God expects that must come from a heart of love. Because you have to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. It does you no good. You are not showcasing God's glory. You are not modeling his holiness if you just begrudgingly conform outwardly while inwardly you seethe. Jesus said, outwardly you sing my praises, but inwardly you're just a tomb with rotting bones. And God in the Old Testament, these people worship me in vain. For their lips sing my praises, but their hearts are far from me. So never think that these laws are just simply about outward conformity. God expects conformity, but it's conformity that is driven by an engine of love for him and for what he has done for you. Which is why he begins even in chapter 20 by reminding the people of what he has done for them. He stakes his claim on the basis of what he has done for them. So never, ever, ever forget when looking at the Old Testament, when looking at the law in its totality, that God is not just throwing out rules that any people group should just do to please him. No, this is special behavior for his people to obey, to model his glory missionally to the world. And do it from a heart of love. And that will give God glory. That will make God look amazing. And indeed, then it will prove profitable for your spiritual growth and maturity. So I wanted to do today's sermon as just an introduction to the law. Next week, we're going to dive in and start looking at the commandments. So come back for more next week. Let's pray.